Ah, the humble t-shirt, doing a lot of heavy lifting for us over the past few decades. Um, I got to thinking about the t-shirt because this morning we were talking about how subversive Jesus is and that we can subvert ourselves and we can attempt to subvert our culture, but the t-shirt is very subversive, right? So in London right now, there's an exhibit on the history of the t-shirt, like in a museum, you know, like in an art museum, in a gallery. So I ran across this in The Economist um, a couple of weeks ago, and so I thought it was interesting. The t-shirt was invented uh, about in 500 AD. It was a long T-shaped tunic made out of some light material. That was the first t-shirt back in 500 AD. And then they you know, kind of stumbled along there for the next 1,500 years until the beginning of the 20th century. The U.S. Navy... Uh, all the guys were wearing T-shirts, and the U.S. Navy wanted to standardize the undergarment of the sailor. So they um, made sure it was white, and they got it all cleaned up, and they put the same kind of neck on the T-shirt for the crew. You know, so you came up with a crew neck T-shirt, right? So that was all great, and that went along until about the 1950s, and then the T-shirt changed. And it changed because of one actor, a guy named James Dean. And James Dean did not want to wear a dress shirt like all the, you know, go to the office, you know, slave driver kind of guys going to the salt mine. Instead, not him. He got on his Triumph motorcycle with his bomber jacket and his T-shirt, and he rolled up the sleeves, and he was the rebel without a cause. And from then on, the T-shirt became a symbol of subversity, of subversion. If you don't know what subversion is, start looking it up on your phone because I'm going to keep using that word all morning. Um, and after, in the 60s, it became subversive. The T-shirt became subversive. And then in the 70s and 80s and right on up in today, just like all the samples that we threw up on the screen there, right? T-shirts are subversive. You want to try and like change the world, then wear your Che Guevara shirt or your Homer Simpson shirt, and raise your fist. Subvert. Wear a T-shirt. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't have T-shirts. Um, if in Jesus' day you wanted to subvert culture, at least according to Jesus, you told a parable. A parable is a made-up story. It doesn't, didn't really happen in history. But parables were tremendously subversive right? Parables were tremendously subversive, and they begin to change things uh, in Jesus's ministry. The parable of the Good Samaritan that Katie read to us in Luke chapter 10, which you have on a cheat sheet that I handed out to you. There's a couple other things on here. You might want to keep this handy if you want to look at the passages and a quote that are on here. Very subversive. The Good Samaritan is a very subversive type thing, but I know what you're thinking. You're like, you know, well, what's so What's so uh, subversive about the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, great, couldn't we all just come here this morning and pastor, couldn't we just read the Good Samaritan and we'd all get the message that we should be a little extra kind to other people and go out of our way, especially even to people we don't like. We should all be kind. That sounds very Christian and we should all go do that. And great, let's pray and go home. But not so fast, everybody. That's not what we're doing when we're dealing with subversion, Right? The subversive thing about the, the passage is what we're going to be working on here. You know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Let me recap for you. Let me summarize. So here it is. There's a guy going down the road, a Jewish man, by the way, and he gets attacked by robbers, and he gets robbed, and he gets left half dead. And people coming by actually thought he was dead. 
So sure enough, here comes a priest, and he walks by, and he walks all the way around the supposedly dead man. Because, you know, according to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, if you come in contact with a dead person, then you're unclean, and you can't go to temple. Okay, so he's doing the right thing. He's following the law. He walks around him. Then a Levite priest from the tribe of Aaron, you know, and all this sort of thing, he comes by, and guess what? He also walks real clear of the dead man, what he thinks is the dead man. Mostly dead, not all dead. Right? <laughs> And so he walks way clear of him. But then comes along a Samaritan, a lowly, half-blood, despicable, theologically incorrect Samaritan. Those who stayed back in Jerusalem while the rest of the pure-blood Jews were taken off into captivity into Babylon back in the 7th century. And the Samaritans stay and began to intermarry with the Canaanites. And you know what I mean? This lowly Samaritan the Jews won't eat with or even look at. He comes along and he takes pity on the half-dead man. His sworn enemy, by the way. Who are exactly those good Jews are the same ones that Jesus is talking to as he's telling the parable. He's not telling it to Samaritans, you know. This good Torah-keeping Jew that's laying there half-dead. The lowly Samaritan binds up his wounds takes him to a local end, and forwards a bunch of money to take care of his health care, his wound care, and says, it's on me. I'll pay for it out of his own pocket. That's the summary of the story. And if we thought it was all just about being kind, then we could all say, let's just go home. That was a great story. Love that thing. That's a great one. Love that Good Samaritan thing. I think about it every time I hear it on Sports Center. Because, you know, Sports Center references the Bible often. I watch for this thing because I'm a pastor nerd. Sorry. You know, the Torah, that's what they start talking about. You have to understand the Good Samaritan in its context is a test. It's an argument that's about to brew. Because a, a ruler, a legal expert on the Torah, on the Mosaic law, is trying to trap Jesus. He's attempting to challenge Jesus. He wants to test Jesus, and he's hoping to get Jesus trapped and bring him up on charges. It's that serious of an argument that this, this guy's trying to start, okay? You know, what he's trying to say is, is that he says, um, so what does it mean, what does it take, O Rabbi Jesus, to have eternal life, to inherit eternal life, which is a good Jewish way of putting it? not earn eternal life, not receive eternal life, but to actually inherit eternal life as, a, as something that belongs to you just by your blood, not like those Samaritans. Okay? And Jesus answers the man. He says, well, well, you want to know what to do for eternal life? You know what to do. You already know. You're a good Jew. You got this whole thing down. Jesus answers, do what all good proper Jews know. Keep the law. Keep the Torah. Obey. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, with all, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, every Judas, they said this three times a day. The Shema, the hero Israel, you know. Shema, Israel, you know what I mean? It just goes off like that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, which actually comes from Leviticus, by the way. Ah, but this challenging lawyer, 
He's not so easily duped by just some simple answer. Now, I think Jesus already knew that the guy knew he's that Jesus knew he was giving the guy a simple answer. And you have to understand this whole thing that's going on here because if Jesus answers wrong and if the lawyer can trap him, then Jesus gets kicked out of the temple. He can't buy or sell in the marketplace. He becomes an outcast and he loses all of his credibility as a rabbi. This is a big deal. And by the way, it could even go so far as you get stoned in the public square. So this is a life and death argument here about ready to start, right? So the legal lawyer, the expert of the law, is brilliant, and he asked this question. Who, then, is my neighbor? That was shrewd. Who's my neighbor? Let's get down to it. Let's politicize who we like and who we don't like, who's in and who's out. Are they Republican or Democrat? Did they actually vote and write in Bernie? You know what I mean? Like, that's about what's going to happen right here. But Jesus is not so fast. He does his usual subversive thing. He tells a parable. He doesn't answer. Now, parables sound totally ordinary. They, they're, they're these little casual stories that make you want to sit back and say, oh, it's story time, get your snacks. They're about soil, they're about trees, they're about uh, farmers and merchants and coins. They're, they're about these really common sort of things, food, sheep, victims. It, everyone wants to listen to a parable. As a matter of fact, only two of the parables that Jesus, of the 40 that he sh- shared, only two of them even mentioned God. Parables are just secular little stories. They're totally disarming. They don't do anything to you. And then, and then the parable, like a hand grenade rolled into the room, blows up and you figure out at the last second, you're surprised that it really was talking about you and it really was talking about God. (laughs) And you're like, what? How dare you? And that's what's going on with the Good Samaritan. And then, even more so in the whole thing, parables don't get explained. Jesus hardly ever explained the parable. It's like just a big mic drop and this walks off. See, parables do not make life easy. Parables make life hard. Parables don't answer questions. They create questions. And at the end of this argument, the lawyer's walking away saying, who's my neighbor? A Samaritan? Did I get that right? See, parables are not information. And we, in our day and age, in Western culture, in the 21st century, we've been groomed and brought up in school and everything that science and technology and history, those are all going to change our lives. If we just get the nice, coolest phone, or if we just make this discovery in, in biology, or we you know, send a car to Mars or something like that, somehow we're, we're going to fix everything. But that's not really true. Information does not change people. Believe me, I've been preaching now for many, many decades. It doesn't necessarily change people. It helps. It's a starting place. It's a benchmark. But behavior does not change really as a result of information. Did you know that only one out of seven heart attack survivors 
who are told, if you don't change your diet and your exercise, you will die. Did you know that only one out of seven only ever changed their diet or exercise? Faced with life and death, change or you will die. Nah, I don't think so. I'm going to get myself some chili cheese fries right now. Okay, well, good luck with that. Information doesn't change us. Technology doesn't necessarily change us either, although we keep thinking it will. But there's always just the next thing, right? It's always a chasing. But parables, they change us. And Jesus knew this, and that's why he's the smartest man who ever lived. Have you ever tried to write a parable? Like, well, I'd like to figure out what one is first, but yeah, then I might try. I've tried. It's impossible. It's hard work. Because they're subversive, and it's hard to be subversive, right? It's hard to figure that out. See, everyone, what's really going on in our spiritual lives, in your soul, is that this information thing, this thing that we think we know something, it's messing with us. It's matter of fact, it's trapping us. The more we know, the more we get trapped. Because here's the deal. The God that you imagine right now in your life The God that you and I can imagine with our brain, with our information, that God that we can imagine will never, ever change us. The God that we imagine cannot change us. Only a God beyond our imagination can change us. Only a God that surprises us like a parable does. That's the only thing that really changes us. If God is inside of our head and predictable, It can't do anything to us. We've got God in a box. And that's why crisis and suffering always brings someone to a new vision of God, if it goes well, and even if it goes bad. Crisis and suffering. Your kid has a heart condition. Uh, You lost your job. You're in debt or whatever it is. You're in crisis. Now suddenly start saying, like, God, where are you? Or God's right next to them. Suddenly there's a new God. Now, I know around here at church, you know, we keep saying that suffering and crisis and hardship and all that sort of thing changes people. And uh, we've, we've talked about it on staff about, like, should we come up with classes on crisis and suffering and pain? And we kind of thought maybe it wouldn't go over so well. Come experience pain, and you will change. I think I'll take the next offering on that, like in 2030. That sounds good to me. Nobody wants to go through pain and suffering. That's not the way we want to think about it. We want information. We think that's going to change us. We think we can get God in a box and that God's going to change us because we can tell God what to do and that's not the way God works. God is uncontrollable. God is unknowable. Do you know God's favorite color? Does God go to Taco Bell through the drive-thru or is he a walk-in person? We don't know this sort of thing. We don't know God. People are thinking, God goes to Taco Bell. Okay, goes to Chipotle. Get over it. All right, I'm fine. The God you imagine can't change you, but crisis can. See, our work now is preparing for crisis because it will come. You're getting older. That's a really slow crisis. It'll come. I love this quote from one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson. I put his picture up in my home office, by the way. 
Eugene Peterson, the pastor's pastor, and that's why I love him. And he's gotten in so much trouble over the years for saying really outrageous things. And I'm actually going to give you a quote. It's on the cheat sheet there, and it's one of his calmer ones. Eugene Peterson, who translated the Bible into the translation we call the message, real easy to read and so forth. Maybe some of you guys use that. But he's bringing out this whole notion that we keep God in a box. So here's what Peterson says. Uh, If I don't scroll past it. Most individuals suppose that their goal, that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are exactly the same, are the same. It's the oldest religious mistake, refusing to countenance any real difference between God and us, imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires, and then hiring a priest to manage the affairs between self and and the extrapolation. And I, Peterson says, one of the priests they hired, I'm having nothing to do with it. Peterson says in his church, he says if the average person going to his church actually knew what Peterson was up to, bringing about the kingdom of God, and what it cost them and what it was going to cost them in their very life, he says they'd fire him on the spot. I agree. We're not just sitting around trying to teach each other to be nice to each other and be good Samaritans. We're trying to subvert the entire world. We're trying to bring about an entire kingdom. Political, economic, social, right on down the line. It's a dangerous thing to encounter the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to get into a church that actually believes that. You see, you can't do designer God. You need a subversive God. And that's why Jesus had to tell parables. He had to get good law-abiding Jews to understand what was really going on with the kingdom of God. And he couldn't do it by just getting on social media. They didn't have it that time, by the way. And saying, I can't believe dot, dot, dot. I can't believe dot, dot, I can't believe the Sadducees would say dot, dot, dot. I can't believe Herod would say dot, dot, dot. That doesn't change anything. Parables did, though. Everyone walked away scratching their head. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia. I've been in Galatians like for the past year. I keep coming back to it. There's something attractive about Galatians to me. I keep chewing on it. And so that's why this kind of showed up for me. Galatians chapter 5. Once again, it's on the cheat sheet there. This is, this is what uh, Paul's talking about on, on uh, how he sizes things up. He says, Live by the Spirit, Paul says, and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. What the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. That's worth digesting just right there. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not subject to the law. I'm talking the same law that the lawyer was fighting for, you know, the Shema and all that, the Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The law. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. This stuff's obvious, folks. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, Paul says. It's not the complete list. It's just a good starter list. I'm warning you, Paul says, as I warned you before, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a moralist or a fundamentalist, 
You say, there it is. There's the checklist. Now, I think you're acting licentious. You see what I mean? And you turn it into this code thing. You became just like the lawyer that's testing Jesus. What if it's just this little turn? What if it isn't so much Paul setting down a list of do's and don'ts? What if he's just saying, like, this is just the position that you're going to be in if you're doing this stuff? You won't, get, you won't be in the kingdom. You won't act like you're in the kingdom now. You won't get into the kingdom because you don't act like you're there anyway. You act like you're a citizen of some other thing. You see what I mean? As opposed to being prescriptive, like don't do these things, he's more like saying like, this is just the situation that you'll find yourself in. You, you don't belong. And then by contrast, Paul easily describes the fruit of the presence of God's Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against such things. You can't find this stuff in the book. This is just what it looks like. This is part of your citizenship in the kingdom. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also be guided by the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Becoming like moralists and who's in and who's out. This isn't some liberal watering and down. This is a deepening. This is a strengthening. This is putting the backbone in the thing. The same, be in the kingdom. Act like it. It's what you possess. Bear the fruit of a tree, right? That is righteous. You can tell a tree by its fruit, Jesus said. If it's an apple tree, guess what? It produces apples. What kind of fruit are you producing? It's all about the soil, everyone. Where are you planted? Who are you? What are you growing into be? It's easy. Look at the fruit. And there Paul gives you two different lists, just samplers of what it looks like, what kind of fruit you're producing. Very simple. Very, very simple. So um, what do we do with the subversive Jesus in our lives right now? Okay, all nice thoughts here and so forth. This is good. I mean, I guess on the simplest level, you could walk out here saying like, yeah, I need to be like a good Samaritan. That's a good thing. Okay, I'll give you that. I think we're being called as Christians to subvert culture. And I, like I said before, I think it's a mistake to try and subvert culture through social media. It just doesn't work. I don't think it works to rant and rave. I don't think politics as usual uh, changes culture. I think subversion changes culture. And we have to learn how to be subversive as Christians. We're like living right here. And we need to go deep. We need to think about how we're doing things. Now, traditionally, if you didn't know how to write parables, which I don't think hardly any of us do, you won't go to the store and find really a book of parables. You'll find like Aesop's parables and things like that, but it's really hard to come up to walk around thinking in parable, right? But what people have done is they've written poetry. Poetry is subversive, but you know, poetry is hard to write too. You gotta have to be kind of smart and have a big dictionary and say really smart things and things like that. So it's hard to write poetry, I think. But you know what we do have in our day and age? Humor. Humor is very subversive. 
Stand-up comedians are very subversive, and the best ones dig into all sorts of politics. Richard Pryor, who goes down, I think, unofficially, as the most famous stand-up comedian of all time. He did so by making fun of white people and black people at the same time and got everyone laughing and exposed the racism that was inherent in our culture. Brilliant. You're laughing at your own stupidity and your own internal assumptions about other people just based on the color of their skin. That's pretty shrewd. He made that work. See, he's not the first one, though. Because the Jews, modern-day Jews, survivors of the Holocaust from World War II, from the 1940s, when they started coming over to America, right, escaping the survivors, right, six million people exterminated. How do you handle six million people being exterminated? What do you do? They turn to humor. They turn to humor. Right on down the line, and whether it was Red Skeleton or Lenny Bruce or Krusty the Clown, all of them, Jews, making fun of life. And every now and then, sort of slipping in like the plight of the Jews, sort of the shrug shoulders opinion of things, right? Watch any old Mel Brooks movie, Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein, anything like that, and you'll begin to see like it's saying like, there's a message in there about Jews. We've had it hard, but we're surviving. It's like Tevya in Fiddler of the Roof, right? The whole metaphor of the Fiddler on the Roof, that whole little musical. The whole thing is that the Jews are a people who are perched on the top of a roof trying to squeak out a little tune without falling off and killing themselves. And that's the whole message is that. And Tevya, you know, in good classic Jewish sort of dry humor, he looks up to heaven one time and he says, God, we know we're your chosen people. But next time, could you choose somebody else? Right? Belonging and not wanting to belong. Or as the old line goes, Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. All of this sort of self-deprecating humor helps people deal with the worst Holocaust crisis that humanity's ever seen. The ability to laugh at yourself and make fun of the world and get your persecutors to laugh at you and with you and at themselves. That's subversive. We got humor, folks. Humor's hard to pull off. You'll have to work at it. You'll have to kind of, you know, get a notepad and hang out in bars, I guess. I don't know where you're going to get your humor. Sometimes just some people are funny and most of us aren't. I'm, I'm not funny. You know, I mean, here, here's a joke for you. You know, a shaman, a priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar. And the bartender says, hey, what is this, some kind of joke? You know, you know see what I mean. Just, I'll be here all week, folks. Don't. Uh. But face it, subverting culture is difficult. But humor is one of the things that we have in our culture these days. And that brings us to our next thing. It's hard to subvert culture, but the easier target, and a lot more work, though, is you and me. How to subvert yourself and your own soul. I'm going to give you this. You subvert yourself. The most easy way to subvert yourself and change yourself is through food. Food. Food is the most subversive thing in our culture. 
It really is. Food is the most subversive thing. Food is something that all of us have to have, and you have to have it. You can find it subversive when your kids are in your house and they ate two hours ago and they come in saying, I'm starving. Really? You're starving like people in South Sudan right now are starving? Yeah. If I say chili cheese fries, you suddenly start thinking like, well, that'd be terrible for me. Honey, can we go somewhere like where, uh, where do they serve chili, chili cheese fries anyway this, on Sunday afternoon? Is that BBW? I think Buffalo Vile Wings got. And suddenly, you know, you're off the races. I could just say, you know, Oots' cheese balls. And you're going to be going to the grocery store and getting that big monster tub of those cheese balls that never empties. You could eat it for years. You should take it with you in case there's a zombie apocalypse and you will have food forever. Is it Oots' or Utz's? I don't know. It's Yuck's. I, I don't know what they are, but. Food subverts us because we constantly have to have it. And that's why as we move into the season of Lent, the church, in a classic fashion, has always suggested a fast. Now, I'm not just saying fast from cola and chocolate. That's, just, that's, just, that's poser. That's not the real thing. When I say fasting, I mean really like on Wednesdays during Lent, you don't eat food for 24 hours. Last Lent, I did an experiment on myself trying to subvert myself. I did something that I read about called the Benedictine fast. It was if you cheated, you ate breakfast, which was a hard-boiled egg, and you had to eat it standing up. I'm not, this is the way the monks do it. You got to eat dinner. It was not a big dinner. Nothing else in between. He said, maybe some water. Now, I wasn't crazy. I mean, I'm not this ludicrous. I, I drink coffee because you didn't want to see me just as a puddle in the middle of the floor when you walked in. You know, I, I need to be able to treat my family with some respect, so I drank my coffee. But otherwise, it was just a hard-boiled egg in the morning, Monday through Friday, and, and then uh, a normal dinner. Guess who was most thankful for dinner each night? Like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I nearly died between 8 o'clock and 6 or 5 or 4 or whatever dinner began to show up at. Um, And on the weekends, you get to eat three meals, but don't do your snacks in between. I'll tell you, I began to pay attention. My energy went up. The whole thing, it was a really awesome experiment, just kind of like walking around with this fasting thing as a mirror in my life. Pick a day during the week, during Lent, and don't eat anything. See how it goes. Subvert yourself. And that's why when we, here in church, we have communion. That's me. I turned it off in class last fall, and I felt so guilty because it's my prayer bill. I felt like I was going to hell because I didn't, I turned off my prayer bill. Anyway, I leave it going. Talk to me on retreat about it. Okay. Food at church, the communion. You know, if, if the communion service, if the Lord's table was only just about remembering Jesus, then why didn't Jesus hand out like little clay keychains or something? I know they didn't have cars or anything like that, but let's just say, they, why didn't he hand out little Jesus figurines? Remember me, right? Like a little plastic dude, you know, something like that. And he could hand those out. Here you go. Here you go. You know, the disciples would now have a whole industry making little tchotchke stuff, you know, that they can hand out to people. Right? And that'd be cool. Of course, you know what would happen. It'd become some sort of relic thing, right? And like, oh, I got an original blue, you know, it's stamped on the bottom, you know. And there'd be the imitations. I know. 
I know. Here's a better idea rather than like little figurines. Why don't we do this? Let's all, this is brilliant. Let's make little wooden crosses, maybe out of silver or gold if you could afford it, and we'll wear them. And we'll accessorize with them. And that will help us remember Jesus all the time. That's what we should do instead of this communion meal. That would work fine. The church came up with the cross idea, not Jesus. Jesus said bread and wine. Why? Because you need it all day long. And then he said, I am your bread. I am your wine. I am your food. Feed on me. You feed on me, I am with you all day long. You will need me at least every couple hours, just like you need food. Every time you eat, it will make total sense to you to give thanks for the gift of life that God has given you. You don't take your own breath by your own initiative. It is a gift of God. Lifting that fork to your face, that's a gift of God. Life is a gift. And Jesus chose chose bread and wine to tell you that every bite you take, every hunger pain you have, every little tickle in your stomach says, God loves you and gave you this life. Is that subversive, brilliant on Jesus' part or not? Far better than the little keychain thing. This is why we teach our children to give thanks. As brief as it might be, you know, so they don't end up like Bart Simpson. We paid for it. Why are we thanking him? Because you're alive. That's why. That's why communion is subversive. Would you stand with me, please? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, or for that matter, any other bread, and as often as you drink this cup, and for that matter, any other cup, every time you eat and drink, you are in my presence. I am your food. Do this. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heaven on earth. So would you join me on praying like the way the Lord taught us to pray, the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray with the Lord's prayer? Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to you as this food and drink is right now here during our time. And I think we're good. All right, everybody, stand up. Let's get out of here with the North Umbria Celtic blessing, the one that we love so much. Now, 
You guys know on this blessing, right? A blessing's a benediction. A blessing's not a prayer. So you don't need to bow your head and close your eyes or do anything like that. It's actually, in this particular one, it's really you're saying it to each other. I know you're looking at the screen. That's fine. But it's really for each other, and it really comes from God. But it's a way of sending each other out here in the village and the family until you see each other again, yeah? So you kind of open up your hands, you know, like you're receiving something, and uh, you say this to each other, and so we say it all together. You ready? May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he's shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.